The following podcast contains explicit language. Which description suits you best? Discipline, sometimes even when it doesn't make sense. Ask necessary questions. Puts others first. Contrarian. Hmm, interesting. Liz is a contrarian, I can tell you that. Hmm. I'm going to pick puts others first, but I am also a contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 17 years, Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain, also a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles. This week, we'll talk to Liz's sister, Gretchen Rubin, about how understanding the four tendencies can help you sit down and write a task that often seems impossible. And if you don't know what the four tendencies are, don't worry, we are going to tell you. We'll also debate Botox, offer a potentially life-saving Hollywood hack, and tell you all about our latest celebrity sighting. And also today, we have a special guest in our live studio audience. (laughs) Yes, we have Jasmine, who is a Marine and an aspiring podcaster, um, watching us today to learn about podcasting. So welcome, Jasmine. Hi. Okay, Sarah, before we get into all that, oh my goodness, we have got to follow up on our conversation about the IgG food antibody test you took and your subsequent gluten-free lifestyle. (laughs) Um, We talked about it in episode six, and our listeners have very strong opinions. Oh my gosh, they do. Um, Yes, we talked about my quest to avoid getting Alzheimer's, which my mother has. As part of that quest, I took this test called the IgG food antibody test to help me figure out what foods might be causing inflammation in my body because inflammation can be a contributing factor to Alzheimer's. We got lots of responses. Some of them were fabulously supportive, and some of them were pretty intense. (laughs) Yes, they were. Um, (laughs) Clearly, there's a group of people who think the IgG food test is bullshit. Yes. Now, some of these people feel very strongly. One referred to your doctor using the C word. I'm not going to read that email. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. My doctor, I swear she's not a see you next Tuesday. I promise. <laughs> she's actually pretty mainstream. Her resume includes, you know, Yale and UCLA. She's a very well-educated, data-driven <laughs> fantastic doctor. And she's really also very sweet. The other thing is, I mean, we're not saying anyone else needs to take this test. If you don't want to take the test, don't take it. Absolutely. But anyway, we heard from people who (laughs) were very interested in sort of how this test has affected you. Denise wrote in and asked, I was very interested in hearing about Sarah's blood work. But what you didn't mention was if after being off these food for six months, she one, feels better now, and two, if her blood work is any better. She said, I have to admit I'm a doubter when it comes to the gluten-free trend, but I am all for no Alzheimer's. I would love to know if this change in diet is really doing anything for her. And that is like the fundamental question. So do you feel better? Yes. I definitely feel better. I feel much better. I have had, you know, the whole ream of blood tests since being gluten-free. I've been gluten-free for, I think, like eight months now. And across the board, all of my numbers are better in every single arena and category. So for me, being gluten-free 
has been really good. But just the whole, you know, gluten-free trend, it really is a trend. And I think that's why it's complicated because some people don't need to be gluten-free. But if you do have celiac disease, which a kind of surprisingly large number of the population has, or if you do have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is what I have, it does make a big difference for you. If you're not sensitive to it, then you can eat gluten and it's not a problem. So there's no point in just not eating gluten for no reason. Right. It's if you're sensitive to it. And so that's where, that's why maybe this test is helpful. Not that I'm pushing anyone to take it. Let's be clear. (laughs) So it was also really nice to hear from listeners who've discovered that they're sensitive to gluten, um, who are sort of in my camp and who have been really helped by adopting a gluten-free life. Yeah. Emily wrote in with some tips about being gluten-free, which I thought were cool. Yeah. She wrote, my tip for anyone going gluten-free is to focus on eating foods that are already naturally gluten-free rather than buying expensive packaged gluten-free foods. For example, you can wrap your sandwiches in corn tortillas or lettuce rather than gluten-free bread. You can make cauliflower rice or sweet potatoes as a side dish rather than pasta or bread. Our family of six eats almost completely gluten-free now, and I don't buy many gluten-free products. Instead, we choose foods that are naturally gluten-free. That is so key. That's exactly what I've done. I don't eat gluten-free bread. I don't eat gluten-free pasta. I just don't eat those things. So I'm just fundamentally getting more healthy foods in my body because I'm not eating things that are packaged, really. So, Emily, thank you for making that excellent point. And thank you to everyone for weighing in about Sarah's diet. (laughs) Um, I'm sure it's going to be an ongoing discussion. So we will revisit this topic in the future. Yes, indeed we will. So it's definitely not for everyone, but if you are gluten sensitive, it really is life-changing. Up next, we're going to tackle one of the hardest questions ever. How do I get myself to write or do anything I don't want to do? (laughs) But first, a word from our sponsor. Okay, now it's time for a segment we call From the Treadmill Desks Of, in which we discuss something pressing in our work psyches. This week, we're all about the question, how do I get myself to write? This has been coming up a lot lately because both our former assistant, Brooke, and our current assistant, Boifa, want to be TV writers. Right. And so does pretty much every other young person we know. And as we've discussed before, the most important element of becoming a writer is writing. But it can be really hard to sit down in front of the computer and actually do it. It's a very difficult habit to get into. Yeah. And when we were starting to talk to Boifa about this habit and explaining the four tendencies to her and how she knew her tendency, it'd be easier for her to write. We realized, wait a second, we could actually talk to the person who came up with the four tendencies, (laughs) which is my sister, Gretchen Rubin. So we're going to talk to Gretchen. For anyone who doesn't know, Gretchen is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home. Most importantly, she and I co-host Happier with Gretchen Rubin. All right, Gretchen, welcome. Hey. Hey, I'm so happy to be talking to you in Hollywood by phone. (laughs) (laughs) We're so happy to have you. I'm totally obsessed with The Four Tendencies, so it's very exciting to discuss. I love any excuse to talk about it, so thank you for giving me this opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, and Gretchen, before we get into the specific subject of how we can all get ourselves to sit down and write, why don't you tell our listeners who may not know what The Four Tendencies are and sort of the concept behind them. So the concept of the four tendencies is to try to understand these big patterns in how people behave. Because 
what I realized when I was thinking about happiness and how people make and break habits is that people have these patterns of how they react or like things that they say or things they struggle with where it's very clear that some people are different from others. So like some people say, oh, I can always make time for someone else. So why can't I make time for myself? But then other people don't feel that way. So what makes one group of people kind of react in the same way or have the same struggles, whereas other people have a different set of issues that they're facing? So the four tendencies is a way to try to understand how really it turns out there are these four types and everybody fits into one of these four types. And it's how you deal with inner and outer expectations. Right. So we all face inner and outer expectations. So an inner expectation is like you want to keep a New Year's resolution. You want to get into meditating. An outer expectation is like you've got a work deadline. You've got a request from a friend. People, based on how they respond to outer and inner expectations, people are either upholders, questioners, obligers, or rebels. Liz and I are both obligers. Um, Can you break that down for for us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So upholders, which is what I am, upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they keep the New Year's resolution. They meet the work deadline without much fuss. So they want to do what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are also important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they hate anything arbitrary or inefficient or irrational. So in a sense, they make everything an inner expectation because if an expectation meets their standard, if they think it makes sense, they'll do it no problem. But if they don't think it makes sense, they won't meet that expectation. Then obligers. So it makes sense that you two are both obligers. Obliger is the biggest tendency. It's the one that the largest number of people belong to. So there's a lot of people who are obligers. And obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this is like, and I got my first insight into this when a friend said to me, I don't understand why I can't exercise. Because when I was in high school on the track team, I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? So when she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she could do it. When it's just her own expectation, she struggled. So we'll talk a lot more about obligers because Boafa, who we've been talking to about writing, is also an obliger. But first, talk about rebels. Well, and it makes sense because obliger is the biggest tendency. So you either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. So it always makes sense to kind of pay special attention to that just because it's a big group. And then rebels. That's the smallest group. It's a conspicuous group, but it's a small group. And rebels are people who resist outer and inner expectations alike. So rebels want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even want to tell themselves what to do. Like, they wouldn't want to say, like, every Saturday morning from 1030 to 1230, I'm going to sit down and work on my novel because they're going to be like, I don't know what I'm going to feel like doing on Saturday. Why would I try to, like, you know, confine myself to a particular Mm -hmm. time? So that's the rebel tendency. So those are the four tendencies. And depending on how you respond to expectations, you can kind of figure out how to push your own buttons or push somebody else's buttons in a way that makes it easier for them to get where they're trying to go. Okay. So if we break it down to the question of writing, I mean, this can apply to anything, like you're saying, diet, exercise, whatever it is, habit, you good habit you want to have in your life, it can apply to. But in this case, we're talking about writing. Yeah. So to talk about obligers first, since that's what Sarah and I are, and Boafa is as well, what can obligers do to help them get in that chair and write? So this is the crucial thing. And if you said, like, what's the most important thing that about the four tendencies? What's the most important thing in the book? This is the most valuable thing. If you are an obliger and you are meeting outer expectations but struggling to meet inner expectations, so let's say you have a day job or you're doing something and then on the side you want to be writing your spec script or writing a novel or whatever it is, The key 
the absolutely crucial piece that you have to plug in is you have to find some way of giving yourself outer accountability for that inner expectation. So let's say you've got your day job, but on the side you want to be writing a screenplay. So you don't want to just say like, it's important to me to write the screenplay, so I should make time for it. What you should say is, I need an accountability partner, or I need an accountability group, or I'm going to hire a coach who's going to hold me accountable, or I'm going to take a class where I'm expected to turn something in, and the teacher's going to know if I don't turn something in, or I'm going to think of my duty to be a role model. So I'm going to say to my children, I have my homework, you have your homework. If you see that I'm not doing my homework... You don't have to do your homework. And so your kids are going to be like chasing you around the house saying like, don't work on your screenplay. Like, I got to sit down and work on my screenplay. There's a million ways to give yourself accountability once you realize that's what you need. A lot of times obligers think, well, if it's important to me, I should just make time for it. And in my view, in my observation, this doesn't work very well. Outer accountability is what works. I keep thinking, like, Liz would be obviously a perfect accountability partner for me since I do want to write a novel, but I know that she would let me off the hook. So it's true. (laughs) So you're not really. Well, and that's the thing where if someone's too close to you, it can almost be like they don't count as an accountability partner. Right. I need to look outside for accountability. Yeah, that's a crucial thing to know is who is going to hold you accountable? How are you going to hold yourself accountable? And you're right, like people who are too close to you become almost like inner expectations and so they don't work. Or somebody's a softy and wants to help you make excuses for yourself. Mm. This is why sometimes paying somebody helps because then they're going to yeah. be hard on you because that's what they're being paid for is like to really follow up and to really say like, I want to see what you've written. I want to see what you've done. And here's a funny thing too about obligers. They really vary in what they're accountable for. So for some people, like taking a class and paying would make them feel very accountable. For some people, weirdly, paying almost makes them feel like they're off the hook. Like they're like, well, I paid for it. So if I don't do it, I still paid as if like, well, that's practically the same as doing it. (laughs) So know what makes you feel accountable. If something doesn't work for you, like you're in an accountability group, but everybody is just slacking off. And so you feel like, well, if they're not doing their writing, I don't have to do my writing. Well, then you're in the wrong group. You need to get in a group that's going to make you feel accountable. Right. And there are writing groups that will kick you out if you don't do your part. Mm -hmm. We're always telling people to join writing groups when they move out here just for this reason. So here's the key thing. When you're in an accountability group like that, you're not doing anybody any favors by letting them off the hook. You may Mm. feel like it's the nice, festive comforting, compassionate thing to do. The reason they're in that group is they want somebody to help them like get something done. And so you want to be a little bit tough with people. So our former assistant, Brooke, is a questioner. Mm. And she right now is taking time off of working so that she can focus on writing. What's a good way for her to channel her questioner tendencies? So here's an interesting thing about Brooke as a questioner, because here's an important safety tip for obligers. So Brooke is like, I need to like quit my day job so that I can focus on writing. That can work for a questioner. But obligers need to remember that just the fact that you're getting rid of outer expectation doesn't mean that you're automatically going to meet an inner expectation. If you quit your job thinking like, well, if I didn't have to worry about my day job, I would obviously be working on my screenplay. Not if you don't have outer accountability. So that's very important to know. Just doing that without outer accountability would not work for someone who's an obliger. But Brooke is a questioner, so probably that would be fine for her. But as a questioner, what she wants to do is focus on efficiency and justifications and clarity. So she might really say to herself, I've made this huge change in my life. I want to get from point A to point B in the next you know, six months, next year. In order to do so, I need to 
work this way. This is the most efficient thing. And really think about putting in systems that she feels like are going to be the most efficient, thoughtful, justified way for her to get where she's going. Because the more questioners feel like what they're doing is justified, the better that they stick to it, the more they feel like it's efficient. They also love to customize. So she could say something like, well, some people get up early and write and do it first thing in the morning. I know that that doesn't work for me. I do better when I go for my daily run first. So I'm going to do it this way because that's what works for me. So for questioners, it's like, reasons and customization. And I noticed that when Brooke, you know, announced she was leaving, she was very much like, here's what I've been thinking about. Here are the reasons. This is what I'm planning. And she did all of the things that exactly the way you're describing. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just almost funny, isn't it? <laughs> She's textbook questioner. Textbook yes. question. But so here's a warning thing for questioners. Sometimes questioners can get analysis paralysis, which is when they get like hung up on decisions because they want perfect information mm. or they want to make the best mm. choice. And sometimes funnily, it's like, Little decisions are harder than big decisions. So she could very easily decide, I'm going to quit my job and write full time. And that wouldn't be that hard. But then she's like, but what writing software should I use? And she could spend a week spending hours a day researching what's the best software program to use if you're a screenwriter. And you're like, okay, you're getting hung up on a decision that's taking too much time. It's not efficient for you. Figure out a decision and move forward. So you don't want to get stuck in analysis paralysis. Good advice. Brooke, if you're listening, no analysis (laughs) paralysis. Now, Gretchen, upholders, which is what you are, I mean, I'm assuming they don't even need this advice because they can just sit down and fulfill that inner expectation to write. Is that correct? I think it's easier for upholders. I definitely think it's easier for upholders to, like, make up their mind and then follow through. One thing that's important for upholders is, like, They can meet inner and outer expectations, but they will only meet inner expectations if they're clearly articulated. So when I was switching from law to writing, once I said like, oh, I really want to become a writer, I was able to do that. But it took me a long time to kind of hear that voice saying, Gretchen, this is what you want to do yourself. And so if if you're an upholder, like really think like, well, what do I want? If I really think like, wow, I really want to get the screenplay written But if you constantly kind of shove that to the back of your mind and just think about other more pressing things, then sometimes that inner expectation doesn't get articulated. So that's a problem. And then what about rebels? Rebels always, like, they seem like this mysterious, you know, fabulous (laughs) group to me. And I think we have quite a few in Hollywood. Of course. Yes. Yes. This is probably rebel central. If you're in an environment where it's like whatever you need to succeed you can get away with, then that helps rebels. So like sales, often rebels are good at sales because like whatever you need to make a sale, man, like it's okay. And in Hollywood too, it's like, hey, if, if it's a big success, we will forgive all. So, but the thing about rebels is a lot of the advice that works for other tendencies doesn't work for rebels. So sometimes they get frustrated because they're trying to make their to-do list or they're trying to like write a certain number of words every day or they're trying to join an accountability group and then they don't understand why They just hate it and they refuse to follow through. So if you're a rebel or you're dealing with a rebel, what you want to remember is rebels can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. They often want to express their identity. So you want to think about your identity. So like, hey, I'm a writer. I've got a lot to say. I'm super creative. I've got a million ideas. I want to put those ideas out into the world because I want people to see how brilliant and creative I am. And by the way, I would like to get paid for that. And the way that I'm going to get paid for my brilliant ideas is I'm going to go through this process. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to hand it in. I hate doing all that stupid logistical work of formatting it the correct way and going to meetings and all that because what I want is to be recognized and paid and rewarded and have more opportunities to show my creativity. So that's the identity of a rebel. I had an interesting uh, a friend who was a rebel 
who was writing a nonfiction book. And I said to him, you know, it's so he wanted to write the whole book and then try to get an agent and sell it. And I said, that's kind of unusual. You know, usually with nonfiction, people write a sample chapter or two and write an outline and then they use that to get the agent. And that's better because then like you haven't written the whole book. Uh, you just written part of it. And he said, no, I'm a rebel. I know that if I did that, I would feel like my editor and my agent are telling me what to do. They're mm. giving me deadlines. They're telling me that I need to write and then I won't do it because I won't mm. want to. I want to resist them. Now I'm writing it because I'm like, I have a lot to say. I feel like writing this book. I'll write this book. And then I know once this book is finished, I'll be like, hey, I feel like getting paid for this book. I'll get an agent and I'll get an editor. And I thought, well, that's a guy who understands himself. He's going to do something in a different way that from what works for, for like an obliger, it's much better to have an agent and an editor and a deadline and pressure. Because then they're going to be like, oh, now I have to write. Yeah, I think for Sarah, for you and me, it's really hard for us to do anything without a deadline. Like, we have never just written a pilot script for the heck of it. And never will. And never will, because <laughs> we've got to sell something to have a deadline. Yeah. Like, we need those deadlines. And, we, and when people don't want to give us deadlines... We get very anxious. We're like, no, we need a deadline. Don't tell us just to do it as quickly as possible. Like, say, Monday. By Friday. Yeah. You know? Well, see, and that's a really good example of how you assume that other people are like you. And so you don't set things up in a way that works for other people. You guys are like, we need accountability. We need deadlines to give them to us. Well, you can imagine somebody in the system being like, oh, no, take your time. Whenever you guys get around to it, thinking that that's going to be give you more flexibility, whereas actually it's very undermining to you. And so part of it is like, knowing yourself and being like, you know what, we really need this. Yeah. And I think um, just in my observation, a lot of times people don't know what tendency they are. Like they might like to think they're an upholder, but they're actually an obliger or, you know, they don't realize they're a rebel even. So I would recommend that everybody take the quiz that you've developed. Boafwa took it and discovered she was an obliger. She goes, oh, that makes a lot of sense <laughs> to find out what tendency you are, because it's in knowing yourself and knowing how you respond to expectations. That's how you can actually, you know, get ass in chair. Right. Right. So um, I highly recommend your quiz to everybody. Oh, that's excellent. That is great to hear. Because it really is true. Like sometimes like you might waste your time setting up a whole accountability group and you don't need that. Or you might waste a lot of time trying to work on your inner motivation when you're like, no, actually what I need is outer accountability. Or people keep telling you, well, you're never going to get ahead if you don't write a to-do list and cross everything off your list every day. And you're like, yeah, the minute I have a to-do list, I want to do just the opposite. You know, so <laughs> it just helps you set things up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Gretchen, it's been so fun to have you here. This is amazing information and advice. Oh, thank you. It's so much fun to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks, Gretch. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Gretchen's latest book, The Four Tendencies, The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better and Other People's Lives Better Too, is now available for pre-order. You can take Gretchen's Four Tendencies quiz at happiercast.com slash quiz. And to all the writers out there, how do you make yourself write? Email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Coming up, I'll reveal a secret that not even my husband knows. But first, a word from our sponsor. All right, now it's time for a segment we call LVS, Liz versus Sarah, in which we discuss slash debate something we may not see eye to eye on. And today we're talking about plastic surgery. Yes, L.A. is known for many things, sunshine, palm trees, swimming pools, traffic, celebrities, and let's face it, plastic surgery. 
That includes everything from boob jobs to Botox. All right, first of all, there's two kinds sort of plastic surgery. There's the plastic surgery that requires a knife, mm-hmm. like a full facelift. Then there's the kind that requires just a needle. So mm-hmm. that's filler and Botox, right? Um, which is insanely popular. I mean, I think people... Now they call it getting a liquid facelift. Right. And it's probably easy to think of it not as plastic surgery because you're not actually cutting anything open. You're just getting little touch-ups. Yes. Things put in there. I don't know what happens. Yes. Okay, Sarah, are you ready for me to reveal my secret? I am. This is so exciting. I, I think I'm – am I the only person who knows? Um, I, I bet Gretchen knows. might be. No, Gretchen knows. Okay. Yes, my secret. <laughs> um, okay, here it is. I have had Botox like two or three times. I, um, wow. I actually haven't had it for several months, really just out of laziness. But I got it only in my forehead to, you know, smooth out the sort of furrowed brow um, and a little like around my eyebrows. Wow. Um First of all, okay, did you notice when I got it? No. And in fact, I think I only knew that you got it once. I don't think I knew that you've had it. A few times. Oh, I didn't mention that. You do it that. very under the radar. <laughs> um, no, and I did not notice when you did it. I didn't notice at all. And I think I found out about it like a year ago. Something like that. Yeah, yeah which I think was like a year after I did it. So it was like I definitely hid it from you for a while. I wanted to see if you'd notice. I was curious. And then you didn't notice. So I did eventually notice I caved and told you. <laughs> um, I haven't told Adam. Wow. Because I figure... Why? Right. Because I know he wouldn't want me to get it if I asked him because he would think, why would you put botulism in your face? In your head, yeah. Even though I'm trying to get him to get it for his migraines, but that's a whole other topic. Right. Well, that's a medical thing. That's That's, a whole other topic. Now, do you think it looks good, bad, or indifferent? I mean, I think it looks good, but I also don't think you needed it. So you know what I mean? I, I thought right. it looked fine before. You know, everyone has their thing that they're insecure about or that right. they worry about. And your thing is that little spot right there. So if it makes you feel better to have a little poison <laughs> in your forehead, go for it. <laughs> Exactly. I, I will say I've never felt more L.A. than I when I was oh driving home from the dermatologist, like holding a little Ziploc bag of frozen peas to my <laughs> forehead. I was like, oh, my God, like anyone driving by knows exactly what I just right, did. Exactly. Because this has to be a common sight. No, that's what I want to know. So you like you go into the dermatologist, you say, did your dermatologist bring it up or did you bring it up? No, I think I went in for it. And I just said, I want to get some Botox. And I mean, listen, this is what they do all day, every right. day. So they're like, okay, great. And I said, I don't want to get a lot. And so they do it. It hurts. Like, make no mistake. Uh-huh. It hurts. Now, I haven't gone back and sort of, I haven't done filler around the sort of what I call marionette lines right. on the face, don't which do that. I am going to do at some point, I am telling you, but I'm just. Not now, right? Because like, I'm just not motivated enough. But at some point, I have no doubt I will do that. Filler is where I feel like you start getting into dangerous territory because you know, like Courtney Cox just had a big article right. come out where she was saying that she like overfilled and now she has to kind of let it go down and she mm. stopped doing fillers. She looks so much better without fillers. Like she looks so much better. Well, you know, some people get a real plasticky look. Yeah. Like it looks like there's plastic in their face. Yeah. And that is really unfortunate. And by the way, should I ever get too much of this stuff? 
you are tasked with telling I'm me. the front line. Yes. You're the person who has to go, Liz, You look chill like a crazy out. person? Yes. Okay. okay. I am just guessing, based on conversations we've had on this very podcast, that yeah. you are not going to be getting Botox. I probably, no, I wouldn't imagine myself getting Botox. I mean, I'm the person who won't color my hair. So I don't think I would get Botox. I also am very affected by the horror stories we hear. Oh, right. You know, like we have a friend who got Botox and like, you know, had to tell everyone she got Bell's palsy because (laughs) it just didn't go well. So that kind of thing scares me maybe more than That did wear off after after a a while. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it took a while. So I don't think I would. But as with my hair, I sort of always reserve, you know, the right to change my mind at any time. (laughs) And now what about going under the knife? Because that's a whole other, because that's getting put out. That's anesthesia. I am afraid of the jowly thing. Like, my mom is super jowly. Mm. And that is the place where I feel like I might cave a little on my principles. (laughs) (laughs) So you might just do a little bit of work on the jowls. I think that could happen. Not for a long time. Well, I think that's an area where you can do it and it doesn't look obvious. Right. I mean, I think what none of us want is that Beverly Hills. Yeah rich woman look where you look like the cat eyes. Everything is like pulled and tucked. Yeah, the pulled back skin. different. Yeah, where your face starts to look like a mask. Yes. That's frightening, yeah. Now, what's weird about that is that they all have it. We're not even talking about lip plumping, by the way. Oh, my, yeah. And then it's like they all one look alike and not good. So my question is, does some sort of psychosis set in where you think you look good or you're just seeing yourself mirrored in your friends or what's right? Is it just a thing where it's like so and so got these plump lips and now I feel like my lips are too what 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 can lips be thin too thin too anemic yeah I have anemic shriveled yeah (laughs) so now I need to like get plump lips also. I don't know. I think it probably is like a group of friends thing where, you know. It starts looking good yeah. because everybody's Right. You stop it. seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I do want to say on a more serious note about this whole Botox plastic surgery question mm-hmm. is there's an ageism element to many workplaces, yes. not just in Hollywood, but in Fortune 500 companies. I'm sure most companies. Mm -hmm. And like my friend Karen wrote a piece for the New York Times a while back about a dermatologist on the Upper East Side of Manhattan whose whole thing is to address women's faces in a very mild way just Mm -hmm. to make them sort of appear in their 50s. In other words, she's not trying to make anyone look young, but a lot of businesswomen go to her to just sort of maintain this kind of um, where they don't seem like they're aging too much. In other right. words, it's not that they're trying to look young or like they're not aging. They're just kind of slowing it down so that they're not seen as the old lady in the office. Right. I get that because they don't want to get aged out of their career. Right. Yeah, it's easy to be sort of flippant as we are about the sort of over-plastic surgery look. There are definitely legitimate reasons to have plastic surgery and to try to preserve, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career. Like, I certainly understand why people both do the needle version of plastic surgery and the knife version of plastic surgery. I just hope I don't have to. 
Well, they say you either have to choose your body or your face. If we don't shrink down to like <laughs> sticks, then we'll keep a little meat in our face. Okay, I don't think I have to worry about that. <laughs> keep us looking good. Okay. So, Liz, why did you feel like it was time for you to go under the the needle? Not the <laughs> under <knife>. the needle. <laughs> You know, I go through phases, as you know, where I like really focus on my appearance. And then for like a year and a half, I won't even get my hair cut. <laughs> so I think I did it a couple of different times when I've gone through an appearance phase where I'm really trying, like doing Pilates and getting my hair colored and um, getting Botox. I think it was just during one of those times where I was just saying, okay, what can I do to look better? Um, and that's why I'm not consistent with it because then I get really lazy. I mean, for me, the whole thing is I have no moral issue with any sort of plastic surgery one wants to get, including right. me. But I'm just like, one, afraid, lazy, and don't <laughs> like the pain. Yes, um, the pain I, it would be huge. You know, that would, yeah, that's definitely a factor. Like Botox is kind of as painful as I want to get with it. <laughs> but anyway, so that's why I did it. And I will do it again. It's, you know, I'll go through another phase of being like, let me look as good as I can look. And then I will do it. And we'll see if you notice. I know. I'll try to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, do you judge me for getting the Botox? No, I definitely don't judge you. I think you're sort of crazy because I don't think you need it. <laughs> I guess that is judgy. It does sound Isn't a that the judgy. definition of judgy? <laughs> so, so you do sorry. judge Sorry. I think I do. Well, I judge you on your hair. I so know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So do you Botox or are you all about aging, quote, gracefully? Weigh in on this debate. Email us at happierinhollywood.com and feel free to call in, too. We love getting voicemails from you. And it's so great to hear your voices. We're at 949 949- Happy 21. Okay, it's time for our weekly Hollywood hack. I feel very passionately about this hack. This week's Hollywood hack is have an emergency kit. Yes, and Sarah, explain to everyone what an emergency kit is. It's like this is if there's an earthquake. This is the most common example of why you would have an emergency kit yes. in your house. Right, but there are so many reasons why you would need an emergency kit wherever you live. L.A., obviously, I have like 15 of them because because of earthquakes. But there are hurricanes. There are massive power outages. There are snowstorms. There are tornadoes. Like right. everywhere in the country, there's always some possibility of some unexpected catastrophe. So you want to have several days worth of stuff in your house to help you get through whatever period of time it is where you don't have the things you need. You need water, you need food, you need flashlights. There are whole lists. Now, you can get bags like from the American Red Cross that are just all set up for you. That's what I do because I'm not going to obsessively go around as you do and to different stores and get different things. I go go and get MREs and I just order it online like every so often because things do expire. Um, You should also have them in your car. Yes, I have one in my car. I have one in my basement. I have a big um, duffel bag that I got on Amazon that has everything for like a week in my basement. You should have a go bag by your front door, which is what the American Red Cross backpacks are really good for if you keep them in the closet by your front door. If for some reason you need to run out of your house, you just throw it on your shoulders and go. You should have phone numbers in it because, you know, our cell phones are going to yes. run out of juice. We're not going to have the numbers. People don't remember phone numbers anymore. Right. Adam doesn't know my phone number. I barely know your phone number. So. I barely know yours. <laughs> 
Yeah, so you should have the phone numbers of people you want to contact, just anything you might need in case of an emergency. Think it through, have it in a bag, be ready. All right, that is a good hack, one that could save your life. And we'll link to some of this on our website, happierinhollywood.com. Perfect. Okay, before we go, have we had any celebrity sightings this week? We did. We got a two-for-one this week. Yes, we did. That's right. At the coffee bean on the Paramount lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, since we started working um, at Paramount, we have been hoping to spot Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin because their Netflix show, Grace and Frankie, which I'm a huge fan of, shoots on that lot. Yes. Now, we did not see... <laughs> Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Let's just just put <laughs> but, that out yes, there. Yes, <laughs> we did not. <laughs> but we did see Ethan Embry and Baron Vaughn, who play Lily Tomlin's sons on the show. Yes, and I, even before I saw Ethan Embry's face, he was in front of me at the coffee bean getting <laughs> yeah. his tea or something. And I'm like, well, that has to be an actor because his forearms were like really muscular in a way that's particular to actors in Los Angeles, like this sculpted forearm and pecs like and there was possibly like, like hairless pecs i don't know but anyway so i'm like oh who's that and then you're like that's ethan embry and then he we go oh and he's with baron vaughn who plays his brother so it was exciting but not as exciting as uh lily tomlin and jane fonda no the hunt for jane and lily continues yes, we'll report that as soon as we make contact yes it's always good to have something to look forward to <laughs> And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Do you use Botox? Do you judge others who do? We want to know. Email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast, give us a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps listeners find us. If you have any pressing questions about life in Hollywood, leave us a voicemail at 949-HAPPY-21 or email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Lai, and thanks to Kristen Meinzer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. And special thanks to Gretchen Rubin for calling in today. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Kraft, and Sarah is at Sarah M. Fain. Until next week, I'm Liz Kraft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. So hopefully no one is now going to go tell Adam about my Botox. Oh, my God. (laughs) Of course that's going to happen. I won't be me. I won't tell him.